0: Welcome to Our Grandparents' Teachings, a storytelling program hosted by Chuck Miller in collaboration
1: with the Sikka Tribe of Alaska, Art Change, and KCAW. This storytelling program will help keep Clinkett stories alive through community education. Join
0: us the first Tuesday of every month from 7 to 8 p.m. as we celebrate the rich cultural heritage of this land. Welcome, everyone, to Ha'lil K'ohas Ha'i Ta'lil Tu'at, our grandparents' teachings. This next episode will be focusing specifically on origins, origins of stories, origins of clans, the origins of our Tlingit people. We have special guests with us today, Miss Kathy Hope Erickson and her brother, Mr. Jerry Hope, who are of the Tsiknachadi Eagle Clan, of the Wrangell area, and they'll be sharing with us some excerpts from a book that their late older brother, Andrew Hope the third, had written a while back, uh, Will the Time Ever Come? And we are excited about this episode, and we hope that you learn a few things uh, from what we're going to be talking about in The Origins. Some of the origins here in the Sheetka, which is the traditional name of this beautiful town that we are in. The word Sheetka is, the ancient name was Shi'atika. It's also been called Sheetika. And throughout the years it had been shortened to the word we hear now, Sheetka. Obviously that is where the word Sitka originates from. And our late elder, Icht Ish, Mr. A. P. Johnson, who was a Kiksadi elder of this community for many years and who was a student of Dr. Sheldon Jackson and our Tlingit community, he had been recorded as saying that the word Sheetka is derived from the channel area along Catleyan Street where All of the clan houses stood at one time, where we have a few remaining clan houses still. That is the only place that is referred to in this community as Sheetka. And the translation from what he said, it means the land or the village on the outside of She. This huge island that we are on, currently known on the maps as Baranoff Island, our Tlingit people refer to it as She. Hence the beginning of the word Sheetka, the village on the outside of she, and inside the channel area is the only place that is referred to as such. Everywhere else, out Halibut Point Road, Sawmill Creek Road, uh, any other locations, our people had names for those. He even goes on to say that the word old sitka, our people never used that word. We've never used that word, and he doesn't know where that word came from. It's referred to in our language as Qajaheen, which is the river currently known on the maps as Stargavin River. And obviously the name of the dance group that has been here for years since the early 1970s, which I grew up in, the Qajaheen dancers. That's where our grandfather, Charlie Joseph Sr., gave the name to the young people. I'd like to also share with you some other origin stories. When the Kikseti clan, the Raven Frog clan, was migrating with their in-laws, the Kadakadi, the brown bear tribe. They were migrating to find a new location to stay. They came across the lower end of Shi, a barren off island. As they were paddling on the outside of Shi, uh, they saw something on the horizon that to them looked like it was flashing and or blinking. Again, this story was told by Itik Ish A.P. Johnson. As they paddled towards it, they didn't know what they were seeing. But to them, like I said, it looked like it was flashing and or blinking. So they got closer and closer. They figured out what it was. The Mount Edgecombe volcano was erupting. And that's what they saw on the horizon. So they gave it the name when they settled here. <coughs> 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 it literally means to flash or blink and volcanologists believe that the last time that volcano erupted was between 10 to 12,000 years ago roughly so that tells you how long arshinget people have lived in this the Sitka area alone so goodness chish i hope you enjoyed This next story that I'd like to share with all of you is a origin story from the Chuknakhadi, the Raven, Silver Salmon, or what we refer to as the Koho Clan. When our family lived in L'tu'a, L'tu'i Bay, our ancestors hunted along the outer coast for seals and fur seals, sea otters and pelts for trade. A uh, long ago, our ancestors when they lived there. I'm not sure I've never heard how long how long ago this story took place, but before the Russians came here is what was told to me. This story was shared with me by Charlie Joseph Senior through his teachings through Sikha Native Education Program and his daughter Das Dia Ethel Makinen. I've also heard this version from klein Paul Jackson Sr. of the Shlukahadi, the Raven-Sockeye clan, the late Paul Jackson Sr. And I've also heard this version from Donna Wak, Austin Hammond Sr., uh, the late leader of the Shlukahadi Raven-Sockeye clan. The version I'll be telling you is the version from Khashatke and Dastia. As our ancestors were coming back from harvesting these fur seals, And sea otters, they were coming on the outer coast of below Yakutat, coming up on Ltu'a, what now is known as Latuya Bay. As they were getting ready to come in to Latuya Bay, you can only come in there on slack tide because of the narrow entrance in the outer Gulf of Alaska right on the outside. You had to go in there at a very specific time. You just couldn't go in there haphazardly. Two canoes were getting ready to come in. The tide wasn't quite right for them to come in. It made it very dangerous if you did come in at the wrong tide. So they decided to stay on the shore until it was the right time. But they also noticed there was a very, very big storm coming, and they couldn't avoid it. There was no place to hide. So they decided they wanted to go into Tua even before the tide was ready. This was very dangerous. Grandpa Charlie says, On each canoe, there was a man at the bow. In one canoe, one man was making the sound of a frog as he was entering Tu'a. The other man in the other canoe was making the sound of a yèl, the raven. And as they came through, unfortunately, the tide wasn't right. It was so dangerous. Both canoes went over, and all those people in the canoe passed away. And all of the things that they had gathered had drifted out to sea. And their relative, our ancestor, her name was Wushkika. Those were her relatives that had died in that canoe. And she had written songs, sorrow songs, mourning songs for the, her relatives that had passed away. Those bags, the furs were contained in were of sea lion stomach, the inflated sea lion stomach to keep them dry. They floated out into the ocean. The tides took them way out. And the Russians, what we call Anushi, they found them. And because of their navigation skills, they were able to figure out where exactly that those things came from. And that's when they came into and found Tuah, where our people stayed. As they got ready to come into the Tuah, they brought their big ship with the big sails. The shaman, the icht, he saw this in his vision that one day he says, white raven will come back and help save our people. Gleit yeth, white raven. And he saw this thing coming and then later it did come. But he told the people, if you do see it, don't look at it with your bare eye. You have to use the Yana ate the Indian wild celery. Break it off on both ends so it's hollow. And look at it with that. Don't look at it with your bare eye or something bad might happen to you. And he told all the parents to keep their children safe. You need to make necklaces and attach dog feces on it and put it around their necks so that if these people came to our shores, whoever they are, They'll think that the young people are just animals and they'll leave them alone. When the people came, they saw this big white sail coming. They thought for sure it was white raven. And then the anchor dropped. They never heard anything like that before. They didn't know what they were looking at. So our ancestor, his name was Chu. He was a, like a retired war veteran. He had no family. He didn't have anything to lose, so he gathered up other people that wanted to go with him to see what this ship was all about. So people that they thought were expendable, who volunteered, went with him out in the canoe, and they welcomed him aboard. They'd never seen people like that before. To them, all those people on the masts and things looked like squirrels, and they'd never seen people with different colored hair or eyes before or facial hair. And they welcomed them onto the ship. And obviously trade must have happened right there and then. Then they invited them down into the, the galley to eat, indicating that they were going to feed them. And they came across a mirror. They'd never seen a mirror before. Scared them, thought their spirit was being stolen. But Ichu, our uncle, kept telling everyone, Be brave. Don't show them that you're afraid or something bad will happen to us. Be brave. They sat them down at the table, which they've never seen before either, and they indicated they were going to feed them. And it's against our traditional people's ways to refuse food, as it would be insulting whoever is giving it to you. So they put food in front of them. they never seen it before. And they put it on a plate, which they've never seen before. And Chu'u said to them, Be brave, be brave because what to them, they put in front of them. They said, even though it looks like maggots with land otter pee on it, we have to eat it. So they ate it, and they thought it was good. And it wasn't. <laughs> it was not maggots with land otter pee on it. it was what they served back then was rice with molasses on it, which tasted really good. And that was the first encounters with the Anushi to our people. And because our ancestors had got passed away at the entrance of Tu'a, uh, our ancestor Wushkika, she sang this song for them, which I'll sing for you now. I'll do a shortened version because the the regular version is very long, but this is in memory of her relatives that passed away. Our Tlingit people were first referred to. The Russians, before we referred to them as Anushi, they were called Guski Kwan. It literally means, translated, people from underneath the clouds. That's the first name we ever had for those people. So in the song, you will actually hear the word "Guski Kwan, people from under the clouds. This song was composed by Wushkika, our ancestor. This belongs to the Tloknakhadi, Raven Koho clan. tea Right, everyone, thank you everyone for listening to our show. Our grandparents' teachings in the studio today. We have special guests with us. Uh, we have Miss Kathy Hope Erickson and her brother, Mr. Jerry Hope. And I'd like to welcome them to our show. Thank you, thank you, Chuck. And if you'd like to introduce yourselves in our traditional manner, please do.
2: My Klingit name uh, was given to me by our grandmother. Aggie Dubke, mom's mom, of course. Those of you who don't know, Clinkets are matrilineal, so we follow our mother's side. Uh, We also honor our father's side. But I am Jackeek. I am Wolf Eagle. That is our moiety. Originally, the moiety was Wolf, and probably along about the 1930s based on Click and haida efforts they decided that they would like to have another moiety crest that would complement the raven side and so they used eagle so we make sure to remember the original moiety crest and honor the new one so that's why we say we're wolf eagle of moiety we have for our crests the brown bear and the killer whale. Uh, we come from Wrangell, and we come from the Red Clay House. On our father's side, we're children of the Kiksutty, Raven Moiety, Frog Crest, and our father, John Hope, came from the uh, Point House here in Sitka. We're also grandchildren of the Kaguantan. Our grandfather, Andrew Hope, and he was of the wolf-eagle moiety, and I believe he came from the box house. Eagle Nest. Eagle Nest, sorry. That's good that my sister's here. (laughs) I remember my Uncle Herb, when we were talking, he said when he is there telling traditional stories, There was three storytellers because there wasn't anything written and they all knew the stories one would tell the story and the other two were there to make sure that the one telling the story wouldn't embellish about their own clan or their uh, favorite persons and so they were there to make sure everything was told correctly so my sister Kathy just did that, and I appreciate that.
1: Uh, my name is Kuake. I'm so proud to be uh, from Wrangell. Of part of the story with the brown bear is my cousin John said he had heard that his clingit name meant the bear who died, and he found out that it wasn't just a bear who died, it is part of our migration story, and he—he is named for the bear who died for our people who were going to uh, were on the verge of starvation, and the bear laid down in front of them and gave himself to them. So he found out that the Tlingit names don't just mean uh, nothing. It's not—they're not out of the air. They're to commemorate something, someone.
0: Powerful story. Thank you for sharing, huh. Our guests have a um, uh, their older brother, who they mentioned, Mr. Andrew Hope the Third, had written a book, uh, Will the Time Ever Come? And it's a fascinating, beautiful book that was done with a lot of love and care. And our traditional ways have been written down from the oral histories. And we would like to know, as our listeners listen, we'd like to know a little bit more about what both of your involvement is with the book, with working with your late brother, what that means to both of you, and how impactful was it for you to be around him and share in that learning experience. Uh, Also, from this book, uh, we also want to acknowledge the the clan Conference, which was started back in 1993 in Haines and Kluckwan, which is still going on today because of, of the hard work that was put forth by your family. And your family is a very prominent family here in Sitka and, and in Wrangell. The Hope name goes a long ways here in this community, so we all know that. Thank so, you. If you'd like to share a little bit about um, your thoughts on what your brother's work and what you folks did in, in helping him, we would love to hear that.
1: I, uh, mostly my role was to support, and, um, Jerry was, um, a year-round presence with, uh, with the Klan Conference, and he, he also was a, in a support role, but a, a very visible support role, and when Andy passed in 2008, Jerry took over the helm of the Klan Conference, and, um... I think that um they're carrying on some extremely important work at the KLAN conference. I'm really grateful for those all of the people that participate in that, whether as a presenter or a guest speaker or somebody who wants to learn from these. And um the people that are interested and learning about the Tlingit culture, Tlingit language, uh, Tlingit customs. The very, very beginning would be this book, a Tlingit source book called Will the Time Ever Come? And it was um, compiled by our brother, Andrew Hope III, and Thomas Thornton, who is at the University of Alaska Southeast now.
2: Brother Andy was always really interesting with Kathy and me. I remember uh, he was always someone who was an organizer. When we were kids, he organized races. And my job, he recruited us always to do things. My job was to have a stopwatch there and make sure at the finish line I got to figure out who actually finished first, second, and third. And so he always organized uh, prizes Now one time later on after that, he organized uh, making sure that he'd do a little film like the movie house theater. So he uh, got a curtain so there would be no uh, light and uh, I think Kathy recruited to take the money. And I was recruited as a bouncer I think I probably was about seven years old. Uh, another time, he was organizing. I mean, there was all kinds of things, boxing matches he organized in the village in the woods, and he organized. Um, when he went to college at SJ, he decided he was going to do some real simple publishing of Haida language, Simpsian language, and Clinkett language. And so uh, he, he recruited... Kathy and me, again, as he always did. And you did. I typed
1: and I uh, collated.
2: Yeah, and (laughs) and I helped collate too. And we got credit for it in those books. You'll see in the book, Will the Time Ever Come, that there was a host of specialists who did excellent work. Richard and Nora Downhower, uh, Peter Metcalf. Um, Harold Jacobs these folks have exceptional talent and skill and um, but it was really interesting at the first clan conference Matthew Fred well he he lists Matthew Fred as Matthew Fred um, but the, he has a son by the same name so Matthew Fred senior an elder from angoon was speaking at the clan conference and it was really as though um, matthew had really understood what was going on and i know that brother andy communicated really well with the elders at the time but there was a real frustration with brother andy that others in leadership organizations did not really um, embrace or understand his vision and he, he just was really frustrated and in part of Matthew Fred's speech and his oratory really questioned if there's not gonna be a time where we, as the first people of Southeast Alaska, do not uh, get heard, or we don't have that interaction with those people who are non-Native, who are studying us, if our own people don't share that vision, and empower ourselves, and I'm not speaking his words, but I'm getting the gist of what Matthew was getting at. And then he topped it off by saying, if not now, uh, when will the time ever come? Will the time ever come? That's the short
0: story. i going to for <laughs> keeping it succinct. We appreciate that. It's very powerful what you've shared with all of our listeners, and I'm sitting here in awe of just, I mean, you've compressed a lot of hard work that was done with the elders at the time into a short, small glimpse of what your brother Andy had done with our elders, our precious elders, so thank you for sharing that. Kathy, would you like to add to that, or is there some of the things that you would like to share?
1: Well, I'd kind of like to um, share some of this chapter on Will the Time Ever Come, some of the readings from it. This is on our own clan, Sikmah mm-hmm. Adi. And uh, oh, and I did want to share one thing. Mm-hmm. My brother Andy was not just an organizer, but he was um, he was an activist before we knew what it meant. Um we would go to the movies movie theaters on Saturdays to the matinees and we'd come home and be whatever it was in that movies i remember we were we had a, a circus because we watched the one on the barnum and bailey circus mm-hmm. and um often there are westerns and so we'd come back to the um the neighborhood and and the sams and the howards and the little feels the youngs, and the hopes we'd all, um, choose roles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one particular movie we saw was a Western and, and everybody wanted to be the shoot 'em up guys. And, um, and he said, Hey, why does everybody want to be the cowboy? Why doesn't anybody want to be the Indian? <laughs> so that, uh, that memory sticks with me because he was an activist and, uh, advocate for the the native people mm-hmm. from a young age and throughout his life. So, um what I'd like to do is share this little bit on the Eddy, and that is our people, Jerry, and my people. The Siquidni people of Siknach Limestone Inlet on Stephen's Passage are so named from the geological formation the rock which the natives used as a whetstone. They are of Athabascan stock, and as one people with the Nanya Ai, lived about the headwaters of the Stikin and the Taku rivers. Together they came down the Taku to the coast where they separated, the Nanya Ai going south to Rango, the Sikna settling around the coast Taku where they lived for some time, but through continued feuds and warfare with the Aquan, they were so worsted that they migrated south in a body and settled along the Stikine and resumed their close relations with the Nanya Ai and built their houses alongside of them on the small high water island in the inner harbor at Wrangell. Their crests are the wolf, brown bear, murrelet, a water bug known as. Saknar, and the Ankh, which, as a cane, was captured in war from the Simpsians, and is represented on a totem pole in front of the chief's house, as a man seated with knees drawn to the chin and on his head a ceremonial hat surmounted by superimposed cylinders. The facial painting is the wolf's ears and the brown bear's ears. For war, the face was painted to represent a rock Khan on the upper Stikine River. The following legend was given to me by the chief of the clan in the early days. The Sine steamed and spread their partly made canoes on the shore of a bight just before the Shaste toon which was named York. Haran, which could be as this came from as somebody who studied us a hundred years ago, George Emmons, I believe. So that could have been Yak Takheen An, and it's a canoe boiling water country. All canoes were spread amidships by boiling in the canoe with heated stones where stretchers were inserted. It was here during a famine that the chief was camped with his two wives, his nephew, and the latter's grandmother. The nephew, Kachata, lazy man, was considered worthless and the old woman useless, so when the others set out on quest of food, they were left to starve. However, the younger of the wives buried a salmon in the ashes of the fire, Upon this they lived for a few days. When it was finished, the boy gave up and lay down to die. As he slept, he thought that a rock called him, but upon waking he saw no one. Again, the rock called, and he saw it was the loon. That told him to carve a killer whale from cedar and put it in the water. This he did, where the wooden figure came alive And as his work drove the seal, hooligan, and all sea life shoreward, for the loon gave him supernatural power over both animal and fish life. Then he became a great shaman. He built a large house for his grandmother, supplying her with all kinds of food. In the meantime, the uncle, believing them dead, sent slaves to cremate them. But to their surprise, however... They saw the new house, and the grandmother had been transformed into a young woman. They were feasted with all kinds of food, but were not permitted to take anything away. However, one of them secreted some hooligan for a sick child. When the child was fed at night, it cried for more until the chief's suspicions were aroused. Finally, they confessed to him that the nephew was alive and had become very powerful. The chief and all of his followers dressed in ceremonial garb and set out to visit him. When they arrived, he told the grandmother to beat the great box drum, which she did, by nodding her head towards it. It made such a great noise that the sea animals and the fish came swiftly shoreward and cast themselves on the beach. A great feast was held the women sold their children to him for food. This apparently was at one time the accepted custom during famine. It was practiced by the Kedichshan of the Upper Skeena River, who gave their children to the Nishka in return, in return for food. The latter selling them as slaves to the Haida. The elder wife to show her contrition for her hard-heartedness in the past, cut her face and rubbed moss in the wounds. He married the younger wife, who had befriended him, and he became a very powerful chief of the Siknach Adi, and his name has always remained in this family.
0: Good enough, for sharing your your family's lineage and history.
1: Ah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: The readings that Kathy just expressed were, uh, when, I, when I was reading that, uh, for some reason I didn't go to the, uh, the introduction of that chapter. I was more interested in selfishly uh, what our clan migration story might be. Uh, and, that, and that actually, migration stories take a long time originally to tell. And the beginning of the um, the chapter speaks about how there they are excerpts from uh George uh, Emmons and then Frederica Delaguna was another anthropologist. And so to me it was really interesting because um there was uh the perspective of someone who is not a clinkett that was um Doing research that gave me a better understanding about the perspective from the writer who was uh, putting that expression in and sharing their understanding and their research about the migrations because there's other clans in here too the Tantequan are in here a few others and then that ended up causing me to reflect again on brother andy's interest not only in this book of the will a time ever come but also the interest of a major passion of his and that was why do non-natives have to study us we have our own very good intelligent knowledgeable people that could tell our own story why do we have to have somebody else tell our story mm-hmm. so he went on this quest and that's why he really wanted the clan conference to to, to happen he wanted our clan elders and our clan doctorates in clinket knowledge to get together with those who have western doctorate degrees who study us, he wanted to make sure those anthropologists were actually in person-to-person contact in discussion with those people who are true, truly knowledgeable about our our own people, and that's from our own people.
1: In addition to appreciating that we can record our own, our own history. He did also appreciate the work that people had done, like George Emmons a hundred years ago. Wow. I remember his excitement when he first got a copy of the manuscript that George Emmons had had done, um, and it was a uh, he had to work really hard just to get that, and he had to work twice because one of them was taken, I think.
2: So it ended up being uh, an interesting journey because in that quest, if you will, of uh, ownership of our own knowledge, trying to get our own people and our own mythologies and our own stories published. So it took him a long time to find someone. And he did in Berkeley. He found some Irish, uh, an Irish couple, Bob and Eileen Callahan, who had uh, Turtle Island uh, Publishing. And uh, so they were really, really excited to meet Andy and on the concepts that he had.
1: They and Ishmael Reed.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: For those of you just joining us, we have some special guests in our studio today, Mr. Jerry Hope and his sister, Miss Kathy Hope Erickson, who are sharing uh, some of their uh, knowledge about their late brother, Andrew Hope III's work uh, on the book called, uh, Will the Time Ever Come? Thank you very much for coming and continue to listen and enjoy.
2: One thing that came to mind too was the Kicksati Survival March. I remember Michael Herb Hope uh, was telling me uh, at a grand camp convention because I was a delegate for a grand camp and as a delegate for Clinton Haida. So I got a chance to sit down with my Uncle Herb, my Uncle Percy, and Dad at those conventions. And we often had a, uh, We ate lunch together, suppers and that kind of thing. And so we got a chance to really talk about things. It, he told me about... Uh, a grand camp convention because i was telling him how is the kiksati survive march research doing how's it going and so he was talking about how it got started with him he said he was at a grand camp convention in sitka uh, a few years earlier at, at and, the 50 year yeah and He walked in from a lunch break and he said that there were some elder Clinkett women that were there sitting down and they're talking about the Battle of 1804 and he got really angry and he told me that he told them, you are telling the Christian, the Russian perspective because it sounded like they were shaming of their own people, their own ancestors. And he said, that's not your story to tell. you That's a warrior's story. That's a warrior's story to tell. And so that's what sparked him to take ownership. And it seemed like that was typical of Uncle Herb, is that when he found something that he would ask others to do, he would do it himself first. That was really important. And so, that being a Ksutty story, and him being a Ksutty, really felt that it's a responsibility that he had to take on. And he took it on very earnestly, and worked on it a lot by communicating with other Kiksati house groups and other clans, not just in the Sitka area. And so it was really uh, an interesting story. And I'm really glad that uh, it was presented at the 1993 clan conference in Klokwan and Haines and that it's in the book.
1: He even went... And um tried to find the different pathways you could go from here to the north end of Baranoff Island and north end of She. And um it took years of his vacation time to come down here in I think it was September's he would come down here and um had various um boat captains that would uh go along with them as they were traversing the island.
2: He finished with a three-dimensional map, and that sits proudly down at the Sitka A&B Founders Hall today.
1: Oh, yeah, I encourage you to go take a look at that. It's got, um, he did a, the diorama and included possible trails. And um, unfortunately, the the Clan house names have been taken off, but he had at the bottom, or yeah, at the bottom of the diorama, the different clan houses, and then underneath them, they had the clan house names and um, had some uh, strings attached with the, the possible routes up to the destination. So
2: I I always thought that those were the routes. I never really did. This is where we might have a a little dialogue as family in the future. Mm -hmm. But they were uh, locations that were uh, a a trail, and there was three routes. One was for the young men who could go fast, and that's up to what is now called Point Craven on the northeastern side of Baranoff Island. There was a middle for the, those who are not as youthful, and then there was one along the shoreline for the elders. But they all ended up at the same place. And also there was a strategy. It was to develop a blockade for the Russian traders that came through that passage, and the Angoon clans helped out with that blockade.
1: Yes, it was not a retreat. It was a tactical military move. And they did uh, halt the trade coming into Sitka, and they were asked for a couple of years by the Russians to come back.
0: Kachish, mm-hmm. well, thank you for sharing all of that great information. That survival march was very powerful, and a lot of world, a lot of physical labor went into that along with the research. So thank you so much for sharing your family's history. Mm-hmm. Aww. For those of our listeners that have not read the book, I encourage you strongly to read our, the book, Will the Time Ever Come? There's so much information that was written, that uh, was done by oral traditions for thousands of years, had not never been written like what you said. Our own people wrote it down, and it's really important. And so I guess the last question I would ask both of you is, why is it so important, the work that your brother did, What's it, wh- what would you like our listeners to know about this book and why is it so important, this work?
1: Well, for me, the the very important thing is keeping the thread alive to perhaps having a tribal college in southeast Alaska. This richness is just the tip of the iceberg, I think, because we had a, a justice system, we had, um, oh, how do you How do you get married? How do you... um, Who raises the children? And um, how do you go out hunting? How do you predict the weather in the traditional way? Or read the weather, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, there are so many facets to living in a place that just uh, we can barely touch uh, in this little hour and uh i think that a tribal college is the place that we can we can explore all of that history and uh keep it alive i also wanted to share that this is um not just didn't start with Andy although he worked like a slave toward getting a tri- a tribal college in southeast alaska but my, my dad, John Hope, his last act on this earth was to deliver a resolution of support for tribal college to the 1999 Grand Camp Convention in Juneau.
0: Galchish, Jarek, uh-huh. what, what are your thoughts? I remember
2: a lot about Brother Andy on the things that we identified as we spoke today. But when you guys asked if Kathy and I would like to speak to this, it's really interesting that um, one thing kept on coming to mind, and that was um, a life message uh, in working with Brother Andy. So he could have been frustrated and stopped when he made these requests to those organizations that I mentioned earlier. And he could have uh, either gotten mad or he could have moved on and, uh, and did something else. But testament to him and the life lesson that I learned is that when somebody says no, a vision that you have something that is a core to your heart in an effort to get something accomplished don't accept no find a way to make it happen it might not happen as soon as we'd like it might not happen even in our lifetime but from Uh, organizing softball tournaments, basketball tournaments, to clan conferences. Um, There was a lot of roadblocks in the way. And uh, so that was... uh, What I want to say is thank you guys for asking us here Uh and asking us this final question because I think... um, those who are listening, especially especially the young ones, if you get a roadblock and there's a passion that you have, don't accept no, especially if it's constructive and it's something that you really would like to see happen for the rest of us or even just yourself. Find a way.
0: Uh-huh. Thank you very much for your kind words. Everything that you both have said. Thank you for coming here today, uh, the children of Kiksadi. We appreciate you, Miss Kathy Hope Erickson, Mr. Jerry Hope, for sharing what you have of what you have uh, helped your brother and his vision, and what the vision of our Tlingit people. So thank you so much for coming in today and sharing with us. Uh, next, we have a wonderful poem by one of our uh, retired uh, educational teachers here in town, Ms. Pauline Duncan, and she's going to be sharing with us a very beautiful poem called All Along the Sitka Bay. Enjoy.
3: All Along the Sitka Bay. A long time ago, Klinka children used to play all along the Sitka Bay. The beach was their playground, and treasure was everywhere to be found. Clinket legends and stories were told to children as they sat spellbound with Clinket music in the background. Herring and salmon swam and spawned as children gathered alder rounds. Mothers and children gathered together to pick berries and tea, while fathers and sons gathered from the sea. There were no schools to be found, but elders were around. The bear, and deer walked by the shrubs and calmly chewed on skunk cabbage and the devil's club. Clinkit children did not eat candy and cake. Subsistence food was all they could partake. There were many trees, tall and short. The trees grew abundantly all around from Sitka Bay to Huna Sound. The Clinkit language and culture was shared throughout their land. When it was forbidden, they could not understand. Smokehouses, camps, and canoes lined the beach, as Clinket children watched whales breach. There were no streets or lights found in Sitka Bay, as children played yesterday. A long time ago, Clinket children used to play all along Sitka Bay. Thanks for joining
0: us to learn from our grandparents' teachings. Stay tuned next month as we share more stories, songs, and traditional ways of living. If you have a story you'd like to share, please reach out at storytelling at kcaw.org. We'd love to hear from you. Technical support for this program was made possible in part with funding by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council of the Arts, and Art Change Inc.